This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Amy Barrett, Editorial Assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. Now, humans' ability to turn thoughts into actions has enabled us to change the world. But how exactly do we do this? Neuroscientist David Bedder's new book, On Task, reveals the latest in cognitive science, and I'm here with David today to find out more. So let's start at the very beginning. What's involved in forming a thought? So, well, forming a thought is, um, that's sort of the core problem. And that's, a, that's a big mystery in, uh, in, in human psychology and neuroscience. Um, you know, this book is kind of goes, is asking, the next question is, how do we go from a thought that we have, that we, you know, that we, we form some idea about what we want to do, some task we want to take, some goal we, what we have, and how do we translate that into the actions we need to do to actually achieve that? And that's something that is, we kind of take for granted. We do it at any, lots of times during the course of our day. Um, you know, it doesn't, and, and these can, and it can be from big, big goals. You know, you want to, you know, maybe go to, go to university or you want to, um, you know, start a business or something, but it can also be just simple everyday goals, like going and getting a cup of coffee, which is an example I use in the book. Um, all of that requires, uh, making a link between this idea you have, this goal you have and the actual actions. And it turns out that's not a trivial thing. 
the brain requires a special class of mechanisms to do that. And that's, um, those are called cognitive control mechanisms by scientists. And that's really what the book is about um, because it affects so many aspects of our lives, right? How we do that translation between our thoughts and how we behave. But in like the example you've just used there of going to maybe get a cup of coffee, that for me feels like it's something I don't, I don't have to process. You know, I think to myself, I, I want my first coffee of the morning and I go and do it. How much kind of cognitive control is involved in just that one thing? Well, I mean, even though it's something we do every day, I mean, it, it, like in my house, for instance, uh, it's kind of my job. I'm the one who has to, who makes the coffee every morning. Um, and so it's something I do every day. It's a very well-learned activity, no doubt about it. And um, those kind of activities, we don't have to pay attention to every little thing we do, right? So they don't require a lot of direct, um, direct control. But that being said, on any given day, it's probably slightly different than the day before and the day after. We don't live in well-controlled environments like the kind that scientists like me like to create in the lab where we can control everything, right? Rather, our environment is very is complex, dynamic, and variable, right? And a given morning when I'm making my coffee, like my kids can come running in, right, and interrupt me, right? Maybe someone put the, put the mugs in the wrong or the, the, the cream in the wrong spot and have to go find it. You know, maybe, you know, any number of things happen. Things are in slightly different positions even. And what's, what's kind of remarkable is that despite all of that, th- those, those little bits of changes and so forth, we're able, our brain accommodates that very, very easily and is able to um, assess where we are with respect to our broader goal. It doesn't stop us midstream when something isn't the same as, it, as it's always been. Right? We're able to readjust on the fly. And, that's, and that, requires, um, that requires control. And it's for that reason that, uh, so this system that we have, that we, you know, is, is um, important to lots of things we do. It's also important to our, to our independence, our ability to kind of take care of ourselves every day. And so that's one reason why scientists are so concerned with this function is that when people, um, for instance, lose this function due to, say, um, brain disease or to, uh, or to accidents, um, they, they lose independence in their lives because even simple tasks that they were able to do before become very hard for them. And so, we ha- so even though we take these mechanisms for granted, they really are, um, they're, they're very real and they're a really important uh, part of, of uh, the course of our everyday uh, life. So if something could cause us to lose this function, does that mean that there's a specific part in the brain that corresponds to this ability? Um, yeah, that's a great question too. So, um, so there, so cognitive control in general is um, associated with uh, the most front part of the of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. It's widely associated with that, but one shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that it's sort of one function, right? It's just one thing that's sort of lost or not, right? It's actually this, it's actually multiple networks and systems in the brain and mechanisms that give rise to control. Um, and, and as a result, it's something that is affected in a wide range of different um, uh, neurological and psychiatric disorders. And it's something that you can also have two patients who will um, show problems with cognitive control and inability to control themselves, but for different underlying reasons. The mechanism underlying those things actually is different, even though they're showing the same behavior. And this is one reason why it's um, been such a complicated uh, problem to address for scientists. And it's uh, kind of strange to hear it referred to as control, because it's something that we've 
it feels like it's completely out of our control and it's just like subconscious and how we turn a thought into an action. Why is it given that term? I think the um, it's probably sometimes it's also referred to as executive function, I should say, and it's probably widely known as executive function. The reason why I think cognitive control is um, is a better term, and it's a term at least I prefer, it's the one that, that is, is used by a lot of, of cognitive neuroscientists like me, is that it's in reference to sort of the engineering idea of, of control. The idea that, you know, if you, you know, control systems are like your, your thermostat, for example, right? So it has a set point, particular temperature. And then as there are perturbations in the world, right, things get colder, things get warmer, right? The, um, the thermostat will, you know, detect that difference and then um, will enact a process, typically a, a heating or a cooling process, to move that temperature back towards its set point. So um, by analogy, a control system um, of Thinking of the way we control our behavior in terms of a control system is we have a set point, we have a goal, we have context to rule some desired course of action. And what we want to do is assemble actions that get us there, but also be monitoring as we go for how we're doing so that we can make adjustments as, as we need. And so um, it's, it, and it's, it's sort of, in other words, we can get from any start point right, to any uh, desired out point if it's a well-controlled system, right, that, that, we want, that we want to get to. And so it's, as, a ter- as a description of the, of the function, that's why people use, um, call it control. They would call it cognitive control because um, it's doing so based on some internal representation you have of goal or plan or so forth, as opposed to sort of being controlled by our environment, which we are a lot as well. External um, uh, external stimuli, things that we that we we process through the senses, are are also will control our behavior sometimes, particularly for habits and strongly associated actions. So, is there like an example of a time where something like that might happen to 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 change what we're doing? I think, um, I mean, one example which um, you know I raise in the book is is um, when your sort of cell phone buzzes. Right, that's a um, a case where you um, you have a strong association very often of wanting to look at it because that that buzz right means that there was a there might be a text or some other kind of notification from social media or something um, and thousands of prior events right where that buzz was followed by some some interesting thing when we looked at our phone have now associated those those actions very strongly. And so sometimes with our phone buzzes, right, in spite of ourselves, right, in sometimes situations we shouldn't be doing so, like in a, in a, in a meeting or with, in front of, you know, in other places or while we're, um, while we're driving our car, right, we'll check the phone, right, because that, that, in, that input, right, has nothing to do with our plan. We weren't planning to check our phone at that moment, but that input was so strong that we decided to do it to, to check, so what happens then when we're multitasking? How, how do we do those two things? Well, the first thing I should say, right, is that we're never, we're really bad at multitasking. It's not something we do, we do well, right? So by multitasking, anytime we have, we're trying to do multiple things at the same time. Um, and so um, to say, how do we do it is sort of say, how, how do we do poorly at it, right, um, to some extent? But um, when, when, we're, when we're trying to do multiple things at once, right, we're, we're trying to orchestrate um, more than one action, right, through the same system. And because um, the way, we, the way we, can, we think about our actions, the way we are able to assemble our actions, um, uh, rely sometimes on the same components, 
right? They, that causes interference. So it, it, just as an example, right, if I tried to say two words at the same time, like literally just at, at the same time, I couldn't say two words at once. It would just my, my mouth can't do that, right? And so that's a, that's a common resource, my mouth, right, in, in, in the task of saying those words. And I can only do one of those words at a time. So I have to do one and then I do the other, right, if I'm trying to sort of multitask at that level. Okay, but that's obviously, in, in, um, there's a lot of similar resources like that that happen um, well before you get to my mouth, right? So in my brain, there's lots and lots of common or overlapping um, resources that your brain is using. And when those, when two tasks draw on the same one, you're going to have a bottleneck, you're going to have interference, and it makes it hard to do it. So that's the problem of multitasking, right? So in terms of coming back to this question about cues and things in the world, right, often when we do tasks, we're, um, we associate um, things in the world with those tasks. And those can um, also kind of elicit, even if we're trying not to do a task right now, right? I'm trying to work on my, you know, doing a, you know, you know, say writing something, right? But I have my smartphone nearby and it buzzes or I see it even, right? It's going to elicit another task, right? Like checking social media or doing something else. And, and so either I'm going to be compelled by that and go and do it, which would, would distract me from what I'm doing, or I'm going to have to go through some mental work to keep that at bay. But nonetheless, it's going to cause some interference and that's going to disrupt what I'm, what I'm doing right now. And so um, multitasking is something that's not even just about trying to do a couple th- multiple tasks at the same time. It's about putting yourself in an environment where you have cues to multiple tasks right? that will um, cause that kind of competition and, inter- and interference. And anybody who's been a parent with children at home during this pandemic knows that it is very hard to be productive when you're multitasking and you have strong, demanding, intentionally, um, <laughs> um, intentionally demanding um, cues to other tasks in your world. It's hard to be productive. Hmm. And you've talked about things that we do every day or things that we've kind of, we've, we've learned to associate the buzzing with, you know, stimuli, social media, text from friends. How do we then, if if that's kind of fun, fundamental for cognitive control, then how do we achieve goals which we haven't before? So how do we know which actions will lead us to a goal that hasn't happened before? Yeah, that's really the fundamental thing that, that we get from our control system. I mean, lots of animals, species do... Um, complicated things. I give the example in the book of a spider building a web. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderfully complex and sophisticated behavior. Um, and it looks for all the world like it's, it's the, the spider has a goal, right, of building this web because, you know, if they can adapt the web is based on like the environment they're in and the kinds of um, uh, prey that are in the area, right? And, they, and it's a very like, sophisticated hierarchical process of like putting in these you know, special scaffolding strands and then capture threads and they edit them and stuff like that. And, and this web itself is bigger than the field of view of the, of the spider. So how could it build something without having a mental representation of the thing it wants to build in that, in that case? But it turns out you can actually simulate a spider building a web without having any such goal, right? With just having a list of rules that uh, are based on the last couple threads the spider touched. Okay, and so, and it'll generate, it'll simulate spider web building behavior very well, or last couple uh, threads. Um, and um, the the reason for that is that there have been um, many, many millions of years of evolution that have programmed that set of rules for a spider to build a web. Okay, but 
Um, so it doesn't require this notion of conceiving of a goal and then assembling the behavior. Humans, on the other hand, we certainly have some behaviors like that, but we could we actually could build a web in some sense, right? But it would be very done very differently, right? We'd be imagining what the web should look like, and then we would come up with a bunch of behaviors to do it, right? And so that generative aspect of, of, of human behavior, that we can do novel behaviors we've never done before, that evolution hasn't specified for us, is really the key thing that, that control does, gets us. And to your question then, like, how do we do it? Well, that means that we have to have sort of basic building blocks that we... That we um, that we we can assemble action out of. So this is what's, what we call, scientists call it compositional action. In other words, we can break down our behaviors into into little little components. Think of it like a library of little actions, and then we can reassemble. We can assemble and reassemble the, that library into all kinds of new actions based on the things we want to achieve. And that's actually where the things like multitasking costs come from, though, because if we, if I've got this common library of little actions I can use, then any two tasks I'm trying to do are likely going to pull some of those same similar actions, right? And anytime that happens, they're going to be competing. It's like a, it's like having a big highway system, right? A big road system. So the bigger my city gets, I'm going to need some arteries that everybody goes through and I'm going to get traffic when they all try to go through those arteries. It's the same thing in a big complex human brain, right? Trying to do multiple tasks because you're, because you, so it's sort of like, Multitasking cost is the price we pay for having this wonderfully generative um, ability to sort of do almost anything we can conceive of, right, at some level. And is that unique to humans? Then? Well, you know, it's hard to get, anytime you get in a debate about is this like uniquely human, someone can come up with an example, right? I think the, the I do think it's, it's no other species can do this on the scale that humans can do. I, I certainly think that there are, there, the components you need like cognitive control, and on, on the one hand, and another is the ability to engage in um, in, in counterfactual and um, uh, detailed future thought. You have to be able to conceive of that uh, of that future where you're building that spider web or what have you. Um, that that's there are versions of that in lots of species, and they rely on the same mechanisms in the brain um, in those species as well. It's just not at the same scale that humans. Um, have them and can do and can do these things, and so to some degree that it is unique. Another unique thing is that humans have language, right? And humans and and we are able to communicate when not just our goal. We don't just have goals. We can communicate our goals to other people, right? And as and through cultural transmission, through language and other forms of that, and that allows us that expands the range of things we can do, which. Then of course we can leverage because we have this control system that allows us to to assemble the actions you need to do it, and so those things combine, I think, to produce the scale in which uh, you know human uh, this this kind of human intelligence um, is very unique, and it's something that we we haven't also by the way been able to to reproduce artificially. There's no current uh, artificial intelligence that rivals. Um, that aspect of human behavior of, of of our the generative aspect of human behavior. So at the moment, AI is kind of working like the spider, just following the rules that we've given yeah, it. Exactly. Um, I mean, I think they're they're you know AIs are able to specialize in like playing Go or playing um, chess and things like that, and they'll and they will beat human players on those games. But they can't. But they aren't very robust to small changes in what in the in the environment, 
right? If you change aspects of that game of chess or Go, you change the rules, that AI is going to have a hard time. With a human player, you could say, you know what, today we're going to do this, we're going to, do, we're going to add this, a, a new crazy rule to this game, and they'll be able to accommodate it and do it immediately. Not to mention the fact that, that human player will also be able to go and have like a brunch with their friends and, you know, get on Zoom and and talk to people and do, do you know, an, a seemingly endless number of other tasks really well too, which that AI could never do. So is this something that we can do uh, from the moment we're born or from the moment we're able to speak or at what point do kind of humans develop this system of control? Um, well, our, it's definitely the case that our capacity for control undergoes development over the course of our lives. So um, I think it's, it's uh, you know, we see that um, children, you know, from up, you know, it, there's a development in, in control and the capacity for control that, that grows over the course of early childhood and into early adolescence and then kind of a refinement period over, over the adolescent years to reach sort of mature adult, adult levels. So it's definitely dynamic. I do think, though, it's important. Sometimes um, there is a misconception, however, there are confusions, however, that, that people think there is no control. Like kids can't control themselves at all, or there's no cognitive control among children. And, that, and that's not really the case. And, and, and I should point out that the, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain I mentioned earlier that is important for control, you know, also shows this prolonged developmental time course. So it, it, it reaches, you know, it's kind of mature stability at, you know, um, much much later in in life, close you know, you know in the mid teens to twenties, so it mirrors that time course. But um, but again, you shouldn't make the mistake of saying like, you know, thinking that the frontal lobe is like sort of just not doing anything until it comes online suddenly at an adult and we can control ourselves. I mean, it's, you know, you can look for instance, you know, in a, the case of my my kids actually, whereas uh, when they went to in person school, their school had an in person thing. They had to learn a whole bunch of new protocols about mask wearing and like sitting at the right distances and the way you can you know walk in the hallways in the school and so forth. And they were able to do that, right? And again, that's the only reason you can do that. You can take this arbitrary rule that you were given. It's not arbitrary in the sense that there's a reason you do it, but it's a it's a new rule, right? That that it, that um, is you have to implement um, and do that is because you have a control system. So the the what is changing over childhood though is that the capacity for control is growing because through experience with the world our brain learns the policies it needs in order to coordinate all of its systems to be able to draw those links between what we know and how we behave. And that takes data. It takes a lot of living in the world for the brain in order to understand what to do. So in other words, the brain is, so control is developing, not sort of, you know, in in spite of the environment around it, but rather because of the environment around it. And um, and that's a, a really important um, aspect of of the of when we think about sort of what's important for education and for the environment of of, of children um, with you know their control system in mind, I think that the fact that it's a driving or um, force for how we learn to control ourselves is very important. And does it keep kind of going up as we get more data? So as we age, or it, does it continue, or do we at some point in our aging um, near the end of our life, how, what happens to our cognitive control then? Well, well so it, yeah, in, you know, it pretty much the, the um, 
control stabilizes roughly by, you know, by the time we're in our, in our 20s to, to early 20s, but it continues to change over the course of our lives. Um, though, for the most part, what we see is that our capacity for control starts to decline as we get older. Um, and in fact, it um, declines sufficiently in very old age that for many people, they end up um, you know, losing independence because they aren't able to sort of carry out the kinds of tasks you need for, for everyday life. Right, um, due to the loss of, of control, um, even apart from other physical and uh, financial reasons why that why independence uh, older adults lose independence, um, and so I think uh, it's a uh, um, it's actually it's a topic of of a lot of interest um, uh, as we have a growing aging population um, to try to understand how we can. Um, uh, 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 maybe help or aid that or intervene to allow uh, adults to maintain that independence for longer. Um, there's also a question of why different individuals um, show different time courses of that of those changes as well um, over time. So um, some people seem to have so as much as control declines as we get older, um, and it actually declines about. Uh, pretty linearly from about age actually 30 or 35, uh, uh, unfortunately, but it continues, but we don't really start to notice it until much later in life, right? It's a slow decline. Um, but, but, but you see the, um, but there's a, there's a much steeper, um, change, you know, in the, um, seventh, you know, seventies and eighties, uh, primarily. Um, and yet that's a sort of on average, right? There's a wide individual variability in that with some people who, who show more and some people show less. And it's, um, it's one thing that's interesting is that older adults, in addition to showing this general decline, they also though lean on control for um, a lot of their kind of compensation for other things that are happening in their world. It's actually a source also to some degree of strength as we age, right? For instance, um, by planning and, um, you know, and, Structuring their environment, older adults in, uh, through control systems, um, older adults are able to you know better cope with some of the changes that they that they experience in their in their lives. And so um, and so, one important question people have is why is it that some people seem to to show this? And, and there's not really a good answer right now, but seem to show um, that they're sort of resilient to these changes, right? And these and they can lean on that control system for longer. Right, relative to other people, and that's actually a major area of research right now. Because obviously, if we had an answer to that, we might be able to help people, you know, um, uh, uh, address these these issues as, as they go. But but I should say that one, I mean, one reason why, if we come back to the point about development, why you know um, control does show these changes as we get older, it, it could be because of changes that happen in the brain. There's definitely are changes in these systems, including their frontal lobe, um, that are make them uh, less able to carry out their function as we as we get older, even in healthy aging. Um, however, it's also the case that if you think about the it, early development as being us um, sort of. Getting collecting data, right? Laying, trying to uh, optimize our control system. We're doing, we're we're basically using that first ten to twenty years of our lives as a way of sort of setting up a model for how the rest of our lives are going to go, like what the what the world is going to be like to control ourselves. And you can just imagine that, as given the sort of the entropy of our of our of the world, right, that the world becomes less and less and less and like and less like the the world of our childhood as we get older. And so the applicability of that library of control policies that we've built becomes less and less too. So it puts demands more and more on our control system as we, as we age. Um, and that's, and that's part of, you know, what, why it's harder to, to engage in that kind of control.
And are there certain kind of illnesses, diseases that can affect this system? Um, there definitely are. And I think, I, as I um, mentioned earlier, I mean, why it's it's actually there's involvement of cognitive control or um, executive function, as as a neuropsychologist would call it, in um, most major psychiatric and neurological. Um, diseases and disorders, uh, it, it gets affected in some way. And I think that speaks to the fact that it's, it's sort of not one, you know, single system, like, you know, part of the brain or something. Rather, it's it's emergent from the interactions of lots of different systems in which any one of which, right, if it gets affected, will generally affect our, um, you know, control. Um, and so one of the major um, research initiatives right now, um, particularly uh, when looking at mental health, is to try to ask what are the underlying um, computational components, what are the underlying parts of this system, right? That, um, and can we, can we kind of identify certain functions? Um, and uh, for one, exa- one example, I, I talk about a lot in the book is, for instance, uh, the, the notion of a memory gate, right? So that function, right, would have a, um, a lot of different um, uh, symptoms that would arise from it. And one thing we could do in mental health is, is try to redefine in a transdiagnostic way, right, what's happening if we understood, you know, across different, different types of patients um, we, and even create new classes within certain types of patients if we knew what the underlying um, uh, cause was, right, in the, in, the, in the control system. So there's a big effort to try to understand things like cognitive control at that level, that functional level, that we, so we can, we can better... Um, both assess and uh, treat patients. You mentioned memory. So how is kind of memory involved in this process? In, I mean, I sort of didn't even think that we'd have to remember things in order to be able to do them, but of course we do. Yeah, so uh, memory and actually I, I spe- specifically working memory, which is kind of our, our short-term, you know, what, what we're holding in mind right now in the sort of capture of our consciousness at this moment is actually really crucial for, for control. So if we go back to an example we talked about earlier, which was the, um, the car, the, the phone buzzing in your car, right? So, so if, you're, if you're driving uh, and your phone buzzes, you're going to have that, that urge because of that strong association to check your phone. But if you know anything about the statistics on distracted driving, you know, it's a very dangerous thing to try to do text to text while you drive. And so it's something you shouldn't do. So even though the more common thing to do, right, when your phone buzzes is to check it, in this environment, driving, you need to not do that. You need to do something else, maybe pay attention to the road instead, or I don't know what, um, try to come up with some distracting thoughts, who knows, but you need to do something, anything but check your phone. And in order to do that, um, what you need to do is hold in your memory, in your working memory, the state you're in, the context you're in right now, and the context you're in is driving, all right, and that is is um, is something that you know it could be available through the senses in the case of the driving example, but it's not always. Sometimes we're we're in situations where, where the infra- the context we're in right is was something that we we saw earlier right. For instance, we um, someone told us you know when you're um, when you're in this uh, in this room, so and so is is busy. Don't go and interrupt them. Go talk to these other people. Right, you have to kind of hold that in mind. Right, in order to guide your behavior, no one's going to t- no one's going to keep telling you that. Right, as you as you go around, or else you're going to commit a um, 
a party foul. So um, the in the case of the of the car, you have a, your your brain has to hold that that important contextual information that you're driving somewhere. It's held in your working memory, and then when that phone buzzes, you need to be able to use that information to and um, to pick a, a different action. Right? And that's the essence of control. Uh, and doing that requires control over, over that working memory. What's the information that's important to hold right now? So the fact that you're driving is important to hold in memory and maybe not the, not the, the dog, the cute dog you saw on the side of the road or something as you were driving, right? So, so you have to make a decision about what goes in memory. And you also have to make a decision about when that information should be um, used as a control signal. And in the case of the phone buzzing, actually at the moment, of course, when the phone buzzes and you have this urge to, to answer it, that's when you also need to enact that control. And if you miss those, if you miss those moments, if you fail to update memory with the right information, or if you fail to you know, use, act on the information at the right moment, right, from memory, um, that's where we make errors. That's where we have slips of action that we all commit Right, um, but just um, hopefully not too routinely. But things like, you know, missing your, you know, you're you're driving on the way to your your friend's house, and you're, you know, but the first three quarters of the way is the same as you go to your office. You end up at your office without realizing, you know, before you realize it happened. Right, you didn't check at the right moment. Right, you didn't, um, f- even though you're holding your task, your goal in mind, you didn't actually use that in order to to guide your behavior at the right moments. So you missed that check, um, and so um, both kinds of uh, so the ability to control memory is really important. And the metaphor we use for that is a gate on memory. It's basically when the gate is open, we can update memory, we can allow information that's in memory to influence what we're doing. And when the gate is closed, um, we can keep irrelevant things out of our, mem- our, our memory. And we also kind of hold on to stuff and we don't use it at the wrong moment to try to uh, drive our behavior. But can these things... Uh, be wrong? Can can they get things wrong? Oh, surely we do. I mean, uh, you know, I think that's um, part of what we're, you know, what you're trying, what your brain is trying to do. And this is, an, an, is um, the mechanisms in the brain that actually enact these gates. Um, uh, at least one, the, 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 the theory that I describe in the book, the framework I describe in the book, is that they're enacted by interactions between a, uh, the 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 cortex, particularly the prefrontal cortex, which is maintaining this information, and uh, a, a set of structures called the basal ganglia, that together enact this gate um, in their um, by interacting with one another. And the basal ganglia is is, is heavily affected by a, a neurotransmitter called dopamine, which we know is related to things like predictions of uh, future positive outcomes and so forth. And why this is a um, um, why this is potentially important is it's a way for the brain to learn, to effectively predict what information is useful to hold in memory. Okay, can learn through these dynamics, oh, this is something important to hold in memory. So it's trying to make a prediction about this being a valuable thing to hold in mind or make a prediction about this is something that I should allow to influence my behavior. Now, that prediction, if that prediction is wrong, well, you're going to end up with a slip or a problem. But hopefully the brain can learn from that so the next time that doesn't happen. And in fact, it's that kind of learning that we think is happening throughout that early childhood period too, where you're starting to lay down better and better and better policies, better predictions about what to, what if, if the, given this type of context, what should I be holding in memory and when should I let it act? And so whenever we're trying to kind of figure out a new task, we're doing something for the first time, we're slow at it, 
right? Because we're trying to work out all those dynamics. We're trying to figure out the right dynamics of when to update memory and when and and how to and how to move it around. And so that's uh, and that's really at the heart of of sort of efficient human performance. And so, can we use this understanding to? get better ourselves? Can we use it to kind of um, get things done faster or more effectively? I think so. I mean, to some degree, um, one, I think recognizing how we, um, how the system does this allows us to, I, I, one way it helps us, I should say, that because I always forget to mention this, but I think it's important to me at least. We're a little bit more forgiving of ourselves in terms of like how we, how we behave. Once you sort of understand these systems, you sort of see why, you know, how, why was it so hard for me to do that you know that example of multi that, that case of multitasking and so forth is well there's a there's a there's a good reason for that to some degree but i think more practically um one thing you can do is you can structure your environment um to help aid your control system to some degree and um you know i think uh you know one example is multitasking there's no cure for multitasking there's not a, you know the only way to not not have a multitasking cost is just don't multitask right but the um but if you're if you have to, many of that sometimes you just can't avoid it, right? Um, then um, there are things you can try to do, like for example, trying to find particular um, settings, be they a place or a time of day, um, you know, any anything you can think of, even a type of music, right, that you use that you associate with particular kinds of tasks can help you, right, get back, maintain state on those tasks, right, and hold yourself in those relative to other ones. And the better you separate, the environment separates multiple tasks, the less you're going to have sort of crosstalk interference between them, potentially. Um, again, it's not a cure for this, right, but it's um, it can certainly help, right? Other examples, you can structure your environment to rem- do those kind of remindings, so you don't have to remind yourself. Um, psychologists call this forcing functions. These are you know, if this would be as, for instance, like, you know, I hang, I put my keys on the door. So I, I, now these days I hang my mask on the door so I don't forget it as I'm leaving the house, right? Um, to make sure that, you know, and so I can't, I can't turn that doorknob unless I've got that mask in my hand. That way I don't have to use the context of, all right, now I'm living through this, you know, um, pandemic. And therefore, if I'm going to go to a place where I'm going to be indoors, I need to wear, a, or I'm going to be around other people, I need to, um, bring a mask with me. Um, you can, so you can, again, structure your environment to kind of help your control system. And in fact, looked at that way, it's interesting because you're using your control system to aid, to help itself. Or you're using your control system to set up <laughs> plans, right, to structure your world to help itself. So, the, But the more you know then about it, right, it, it's easier to kind of come up with those strategies that work for you. But these all sound kind of very short-term goals. Is there anything that can help us with longer-term goals? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, I mean, well, first thing I think we should I should point out is there's a bit of a distinction between a very long term goal and, and a short term goal from from you know in terms of the problem involved. Um, so there are two issues. So one is that you have as as you're doing a task in time, um, you're um, you have to do something. The brain has to in some way abstract over time. It's called temporal abstraction. So you have to think of that same task has to exist in the time moving forward, right? And, as, and you're sort of collapsing across all the differences in time and you're imagining that task. So for short-term goals, that's very realistic. I can be making coffee. You can characterize me as making coffee for some you know, reasonably, hopefully short period of time where I'm engaged in that task. But if you're thinking about like preparing to go to college or to university, that's a very long 
time frame, right? And it's very unlikely that you would characterize everything you're doing over the whole of your early part of your life as, as going to, uh, you know, getting ready for, for, to go to the university, right? Um, and so the, the, the kinds of mechanisms you need are going to be different between those two situations. The second big difference is, um, is that the, the bigger goals are typically more open-ended. In other words, you'd re- if you're not quite, you can't trace the whole path Right? You can't, of, of what are the different actions I need to take that get me all the way from the day I went into my first classroom as a child all the way to the day I walked into my first classroom at, at the university, right? It's just, it's just impossible. That would be intractable. And so in that case, you can, again, what you have, you're going to probably have a series of reassessments over time, right, of where am I with respect to that broader goal and then, and then how, can I, how can I plan accordingly. Um, and I should say that it, with patients that suffer problems with executive function or cognitive control, it's those open-ended problems that cause the biggest challenge for those patients. That's where you'll typically see them. They're actually can, some of them will be fine at simple tasks. They won't have an issue at all. It's with those complex open-ended problems where they run into issues. So now, what kinds of um, can I offer any tips in terms of how to how to do better? Um, that's hard. That's hard to say. It's really there's not a there's not a really a clear uh, recommendation I could I could make that's you know supported by data. Other than to say that I think um, we recognize that these open ended problems are hard and they require lots of reassessments. So one thing that's helpful is to find um, ways of doing that monitoring of those checks. Right with respect to that's why probably many people like to emphasize things like you know, personal development plans and other kinds of goal setting because it's a way to make explicit right where when you when you have to do that replanning step over and over again it makes very explicit sort of where you are and that's probably a good strategy for the system to take um, but yeah it's it's um, you're asking a great question if we really understood like the full process that got us to university then. Um, that we'd be much further along than we are today. <laughs> but all of these things we've talked about are kind of individual actions. Um, so how does this help humanity as a whole solve problems together? Well, that so, so this was at the um, I, uh, is a is a good question because I think it, it addresses a, a really um, really deep point about why we study things like cognitive control. I think I think if you think about um, you know, a lot of the problems we face as a, as a the brain faces, right? The challenges that it faces in order to be a general, uh, you know, engage in general action, right? As a control system, are going to be faced by any system that wants to do general action, including things like societies. So I give the example in the book uh, of climate change, which um, uh, is something a crisis that we're we're facing as a as a as a as a species, as a, as a world, actually, not just us, right? The whole world's facing this, and so one question is is what do we do about it? And it's an interesting, interesting problem because a lot of the focus, at least in the U.S., has been on um, people who are sort of don't accept the science uh, behind climate change and, and deny either either human involvement or, or that it's happening at all. Uh, and that's surely a problem, uh, and it's an obstacle to any kind of progress. But um, but there's there's another question which is um, also of interest uh, to activists in this area is why is it that um, there are actually a large number of people who do believe in climate change, right? Who who accept the science, but yet don't seem to be doing enacting any changes in their own behavior as a result of that of that knowledge, right? So why would that happen, 
And it's and what's interesting about it is is it, it's a case at the level of the society of this knowledge action dissociation that I mentioned earlier, right? The idea that it's not enough to just have a goal, right? You need processes that can assemble the right actions to take, and that will will, will assemble the right actions to to take to do it. Um, and so, I think studying something like cognitive control um, it allows us to understand first a little more about why is it that people might have have goals that they don't actually follow through on, that they aren't able to enact, right, at the individual level. And it also raises these dilemmas um, that the brain faces that are being faced by a society too. Like one example is this sort of, is the so-called stability-flexibility um, dilemma, right? So things that you do to build stability into a system, right, of control, right, are make it harder to be flexible when you need to be, uh, and vice versa. If you're too flexible, it's also hard to be, be sustained. And so um, those kinds of dilemmas face a society as well. And I think under, if a better understanding of that might help us understand how we can do things like enact um, the changes we want, like for, as an example, uh, combating climate change. And talking of changes in context, um, obviously this year for for most of us, the last year has been very, very different. Um, Do you think that there's anything that you've seen happening that will have a lasting impact um, on the way we uh, act or the way we process? Well, that's a fantastic question. I think, um, I do think that, you know, we have, there there are going to be some changes in terms of we understand more about, a little bit more about how we um, take information that is important at a, at a societal level, right? And how we, um, how, we trans, how we can change sort of as a group in response to it. I actually think it's, uh, I can't think of a crisis that was as worldwide as this that caused as massive a behavior change as we saw. I mean, it was within weeks, you know, large, you know, people, whole societies are changing the way we work, the way we get food, the way we, we do, we do everything. Um, we socialize. And, um, and so I think we've learned a lot, both about, about our capacity to that, but also how fatiguing it is and how challenging it is to, to keep track of and to do. And I think, um, one thing we're, you know, you, that's, you're seeing is things like, um, they call it pandemic fatigue, where compliance rate, you know, compliance goes down over time. And it's raised interesting new questions about what, why that is, right? What's the, um, you know, why do we see changes in, um, in, in compliance, again, for something we know we should be doing, but yet um, people seem like, you know, just less, less willing to do it, just put in the mental energy to do it. And it's, uh, and it's, I think heavily, it's related to a lot of different causes, obviously, but one of the interesting ones from my perspective is um, the change in the way that uh, mental effort, mental investment um, affects our ability to, to do things that we, we know are good for us to some degree, which is, I think, a problem that's, you know, transcends the pandemic. In terms of like, will we, I think, change the way we, we behave, work, and, and at least speaking as a scientist, do science. I think it's broadened us in a lot of ways. I think it's made much more, because we've built into our behaviors now the ability to talk you know, to other people over Zoom really regularly or, what, or whatever your, your favorite um, uh, medium is. And, and I think it's made, it's sort of, I've seen much more common now that people are like, oh, you know, we're having a lab meeting on this topic. We thought you might want to, if you're available at this time, would you like to drop in? You know, I think we've, since we've now dealt with all the barriers on that, I can see that easily continuing into the future, which will connect us a lot more in certain ways. Um, and I think could be, could be positive. 
That was David Better revealing why we can't multitask, how our brains turn thoughts into actions, and how life in lockdown might have changed our minds and our behaviour. For more stories of science news and research, pick up the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine or head to sciencefocus.com. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Science Focus podcast, please do leave us a review wherever you're listening. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.